0: You're listening to the Anti-Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kendall, and my mission is to tell stories of small business owners, successful founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and other leaders. We want to delve into how the failures and speed bumps along the way shape their businesses and their journey. Joining me in the studio is a highly driven self-starter, Hung Choi. Hung is one of Australia's most awarded mortgage brokers and wealth strategists. Principal of Yellow Brick Road, Randwick and Macquarie Park and Director of Strategic Brokers. Thanks for coming in to chat today, Hung. Your story is certainly a very fascinating and inspiring one. Could you start by telling the audience
1: a little bit about yourself and your background? Thanks for having us on the podcast today. I've been in, I guess, small business, I'd like to say since the age of 14, funny enough. Yeah. (laughs) So I've only ever been employed once for two years and uh, that was for a big four bank. Besides that, I pretty much worked for myself the whole time. Oh, you know what, I lie. I did work at McDonald's yep, for, like like for a few years <laughs> between 15 and 18. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I did run poker tournaments for a year in between Why? that. Okay. Uh, so a good poker player too. Yeah. Yeah. Very I good. did. I did play professionally for one year of my life as well. Wow. But the, uh, I guess the general gist of where we are today, my business is called, or the predominant business is called strategic brokers. Um, we, about 10 brokers in total. And, um, I guess Strategic Brokers have been around for three years prior to that, uh, and we're still with them. Yellowbrick Road. We left yep. a franchise model for five years uh, prior to that in Randwick and Macquarie Park. Um, yeah, and the background of myself, I we came to this country uh, in 1987. I'm, I was born that year. Funny enough. Yeah. Um, and my my parents, they I guess they are refugees from Cambodia. So very interesting. Yeah. They tried to flee. I don't know if anyone knows much about the killing fields in uh-huh. Cambodia, yep. but, you know, they, they pretty much lived through it, you know, through wow. the 70s and the 80s, forced slave labor and rice fields 16 hours a day. Wow. Well, they had to literally go out, work, come back, sleep, yep. one bowl of rice and off you are again day in, day out. So wow, that's the history of the family. Probably to relate to the podcast, my father, he tried to escape Cambodia. I think, I don't know the exact year, but I think it was 1982. Yeah. Or something like that. Just, just kind of after... The whole, you know, killing fields. Yeah. And then he um, jumped on, I guess, a refugee boat, put all of his belongings on there, and then was captured along the way. The whole family, the whole generation jumped on this boat. So I think he's he's got three sisters and a brother, um, and also my grandmother at the time. They all jumped on this boat. Nobody had kids except for my my dad. So that was my older brother. He would have been just a baby at the time, but they, yeah, they jumped on some sort of pirate ship, I call it. That's crazy. And tried to sail their way into Australia. And they were captured on the way? They were captured that time. So say captured, what happened was they I think they were passing through Thailand when then the Thai military came along and they, you know, obviously caught them in the seas and right. go, what are these guys doing on our water? So yep. they obviously dragged their boat into the shore and found all of these refugees in the boat, said to themselves, What are we gonna do with these people? Our jails are full. Yeah. We don't want to spend money feeding them. So that what they decided to do at midnight was get a get a tugboat and drag that boat to the middle of the ocean and uh punched some holes into the side of the boat wow yeah so that was the first like attempt to escape the war-torn country the boat ended up in the water and sinking so everyone was at the bottom just trying to toss the water out they'd run out of food after pretty much 24 hours or two days i I don't know what the exact time frame was yep but the memories for my dad was always telling me that they ran out of food Everyone started getting hungry. There was no water and it was just, it was like 30 degrees, 35 degrees every day. Wow. And I figured I went for four or five days without water and just kind of rolling around the sea. They were managed, they got fortunate enough to get a bit of rain and have some tarps and eventually yep. got some waters because you can survive without food, but you can't survive without water, right? Yep. He doesn't know how many days, he reckons it was seven or eight days just floating around the sea wow. um, before they crashed into an island somewhere. So. And then how did they, uh, how did they end up coming to Australia? Yeah, so that island, they end up like yeah surviving on the Was island. Island. Um, they the funny enough, the, the boat ended up back in Cambodia. Oh wow, <laughs> so back where they started. <laughs> wow. In in some island, they got stuck like castaways on the island for the, another week, eating vegetables and and water until a uh, Vietnamese fishing boat um came past and they waved them down. Wow. They took them in, and they were really nice people. From what my dad told me, they took yep. them back to their village, fed them, yeah, you know, gave them blankets and things like that. And um, but then the next thing you know, the the police from Vietnam were there and yeah, the rest of them all and locked them all up so they were stuck in jail for a month after that and didn't know what they didn't know what to do with the vietnamese jails so i think my dad bribed his way through i don't know how he had some gold left over in his belongings or something like that wow um and he bribed he made good friends with one of the guards and eventually bribed a guy the guy had a soft spot for my dad and let the whole family go in the middle of the night and then they escaped got back to Cambodia somehow <laughs> yeah yeah i think they walked their way there or something like that and uh, crazy story yeah and so talk about failure right? resilience and talk about yeah. uh finding a way to get something happening so fast forward that two years later um yeah. so he failed. they failed miserably yeah two years later guess what decided to do it again yeah <laughs> So they and onto the, another refugee boat. Onto another refugee boat. So they did it all over again two years later. Wow. This time, it's not the same thing. They got a bit further, but they got caught by the Australian government this time. Wow. <laughs> so they made it all the way to the Australian shores. And I think the, Australia was sending the refugees to Thailand at the time. Is that right? Yeah. So then they were sent in the then back wow. to Thailand again and stuck in a refugee camp for a few years. And that's where I was born. Oh, <laughs> and so, wow. And then eventually we are able to get... Refugee status here in Australia. Yeah, so Bob Hawke came into power, yeah, and yeah. he was you know, opening up the floodgates. Thank God, that yeah, happened right. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, through sponsorship, we had family already here. Through sponsorship, we were able to get in during that period. And yeah. I, th- I think it was really fortunate. Women and children first, and I was a newborn. I was six months old. Okay, so yeah, they let us in. And Interesting. And, and and
0: how much of that story or or of your dad's resilience do you think you've picked up in the journey? Is that where the work ethic comes from, the the resilience, the the passion for Doing what is
1: important yeah. to you. I think I think part of that in the upbringing, everyone that was around me kind of went through that. Not exactly what my father went through, but went similar through stories, yeah, you know, or, or horrific stories and and seen you know some horrific things. So like even basic things when all kids kids like eating rice, like yep. they weren't allowed to leave a single speck of rice, would get a lashing. Yeah, Every right. piece of rice left over. Uh, we were just always called tall good values, you know, mm-hmm. growing
0: up. And how do you how do you think some of those values have been framed by the Australian schooling and the, the experiences that you had here as part of a immigrant family, but also in the local community as part of schooling, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so look, in, I grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney. So um, for those listeners who are, I guess, in... Sydney or in Australia, they'll probably be familiar with Cabramatta, Fairfield. Yep. yep. Uh, we started our lives in Fairfield, and then in Cabramatta. Those areas were ninety percent migrants. You'd be lucky to see an Aussie in the area. Yep. Yeah. So with all of the migrant families, you kind of learn they all grow up with those similar upbringings. Yep. You're learning everything, every way to save a dollar, every way to make sure that you're building for the future, and take nothing for granted right now. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So every everything. Save you give. for a rainy day always save for a day buy a house pay it off Mm -hmm. you know all of those Mm -hmm. things and work really really hard so i would watch my dad go to work at like i think he'd leave the house at like 4 p.m just after i get back from school and what what business was he in he is was still manufacturing so he worked for Sydney water he he landed a job i think it took him like eight months or something to land a job when he when he arrived so we stayed with family i think there was like 13 14 of us in a three-bedroom house wow yeah i remember that's the start of it and dad I've uh, got a job um, at Sydney Water and then he he'd probably spend literally like ten bucks a week. He'd save it. Was so important for him to save for the family in your future. Yeah, correct. And he sacrificed himself
0: to get out there and make it happen.
1: So uh, yeah, Just I I remember the four AM uh, four PM starts and getting home at six in the morning every night. So he'd do as much overtime well, as he could. Yeah. Uh and he'd do the graveyard shift. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah this was basically cutting and manufacturing steel pipes for all of the pipes in Sydney. So that's, Fantastic. Yeah. Interesting that's, story.
0: Yeah. That's so that's where it all started. That was the lessons you were being taught as a kid. Yeah, 100%, 100%. 100%. Well, as I understand it, your first venture was running poker games in pubs and clubs across Sydney. How was it that your entrepreneurial journey evolved from where from there and now owning and running multiple financial businesses?
1: Yeah, so I think the it was a poker tournaments um, that kind of came out when I was about eighteen. Went to RSLs, played free poker. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Found out I was really good at it. I was, yep. I was a very gifted mathematical kid. I okay. Guess, so yep I used to get a hundred percent nearly every test, even in my HSC for maths. So great. Gave um, you know, I, I had a natural gift, and poker was a game of probability. Maths um, was one of two subjects I passed in my HSC. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yep. Yeah, so I, I think I always had the entrepreneurial spirit in me. Um, ever since I was like 14, I started writing or buying and selling things on the trading post. I know yeah, yeah, remember. I remember the trading post. I'd yeah. be excited to see the real estate. Paper come into the mail or the trading post to come in. Yeah. And these things just excited me. And it wasn't normal for a kid to be excited about these things. But I'd find things that were undervalued and buy them and then sell them. Fantastic. Um, Even from that, then when I was in high school, I was running under-18s nightclubs. Cause mm-hmm. I, I felt that that was a moneymaker. Yeah. Everybody wanted to party and yeah. nobody was hosting them. So I was charged $30 for a ticket to one of my events and, you know, hire a community hall, hire, uh, we hired a boat at one point. Oh, no. right. Yeah. And then, and then ran parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd used a cousin or older, you know, relative to sign off for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And in in those experiences, was it was it a sense of
0: driving a business to meet a purpose you had, or was it about earning the money, or was it a combination of
1: both? I'll be honest. Like when I was probably younger, it was mm-hmm. about I needed to earn money. Yep. Yeah, that that yep. was the truth, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I followed kind of things that I loved or enjoyed to make money. It wasn't just right, right, doing something like I. For the nightclub scene when I was a little, when I was a teenager, I actually had this passion to create an event that everybody would talk about, you know, that it was like the coolest event that if you went there, you're like, oh, did you hear about this, you know? Because yeah. it was all word of mouth back then. The yeah, there was no bit, social was, media. There yeah. was
0: no way to put it out on Instagram or, no. or Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So can you think about some experiences in that part of your journey, whether it was poker or, or nightclubs? Are there still things that you learned back then out of perhaps failures that you use to help you in your current business
1: ventures oh absolutely you know so you know even starting back way back to nightclubs when I was I, I kept doing nightclubs when I was a bit older as well to be okay. honest because yep. they were a good good uh, revenue generator but I also really enjoyed it but when I was young at the one I hosted on a the boat there wasn't enough security to things were so when it measures in place a big fight broke out and I got I pretty much got barred from hiring boats ever again <laughs> <laughs> so and wow the reputation of the business went downhill and like when i got back into that scene again made sure the compliance yeah. was is there because we were just running an trying to make it as fun as possible so so they banned you not the people who had the fight oh well the people that fight they obviously were banned also but, right, <laughs> but right. you know they're not going to go back on their boat right all those learning curves also the way that we kind of managed our systems our operations yeah. We, we used to go to around the most popular kids at school and just ask them to sell tickets. And after two or three times, they're kind of like, oh, they feel like they we're being used. We're not getting paid anything. You get a free entry. And so right. we had to figure out ways of keeping them, I guess, motivated. Fascinating. Like so everything you do, you always have to keep tweaking and finding a better way to do it, right? Yeah,
0: and I, I guess that principle applies in any business, right? If there's, if there's resistance or there's no's, I remember when I started my business, a lot of people thought, no, well, and they want to give feedback on yes, it will work or no, it won't. And then you take all of this feedback and try and put it through a, a blender, if you like, and figure out, okay, so if that's the feedback I'm getting, how do I take that into account in the way that I present the business model? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, interesting. If you think back on on that experience and then you started the broking business, yeah. what what is it that gave you the opportunity
1: to step into broking? What did you see about it? What was it that excited you about it? With that poker business, you went. I actually was running poker tournaments and then I bought the franchise. Ran. Oh, really? Right. So I ran that franchise for five years in what part of sydney um i ran the inner west of sydney so okay. yeah it was um pretty much from Burwood through to bankstown wow or say inner west. just yeah it's kind of inner west right yep yeah so we ran that region for five years and what i could see in that business was there was a world series that an australian one named joe hasham back, yep. back in nothing it was back in 2013 12 something like that yep and poker was just flying absolutely off. flying yeah yep. so that that's when the franchise flood flying we'd bring people into RSLs or clubs They'd yep. Spend money, the venues will pay off. Uh, and the business, I'd, like, we grew dramatically. I was a 19 year old kid making more money than he could actually spend and buying general drinks at the bar. <laughs> and then, yeah, I saw the business just kind of going the wrong direction. The clientele that were coming in were no longer fun, they were just like the same week in, week out, and they stopped right. spending money. So the um, venue's worth enjoying So I could see the decline of it from where it was. And I was a major in accounting and finance. At the same time, I was running that business in Macquarie Uni. I didn't like, I'm doing this degree for no reason. But I'm, I know I'm good at numbers. Yeah. I need I need to get something. So I went like heaven and hell trying to find a business to start up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't figure out anything to start up because I was too young, you know, not yeah. skilled, didn't have yeah. the life experience. So I started looking into franchising, obviously, because yeah. that's the best way in, right? When you have nothing mm-hmm. else to build from. And I went to all these franchise expos, even started thinking about, it, things like gyms mowing and all sorts of things i thought yep. of everything i got looked at gyms nothing really kind of drew to my personality or what i could do well or drive really well and the margins i looked at them they're way too thin they'd right. excite me yep franchising it's a hard business it is yeah yep. it is very hard I, so i went from that um it's funny enough this is how i got mortgage broking was i was watching i was because i was running poker tour i was doing late night shifts i was coming at four in the morning so I'd sleep until like midday or eleven or whatever, and then I'd watch the morning show or something. Flick on the telly, right? Yeah. Uh, so on the morning show, a bloke come on and he's like, "You can be a mortgage broker." Okay. <laughs> and yep. it's like it's yep. kind of like the American yeah, win watch yeah. you thing. Yep. And he's talking about all these tradies who became mortgage brokers and all this stuff, and I'm like, "Mate, I'm, these guys are doing really well." Yep. I, you know. I'm i'm very good numbers so like I'd, yep. I'd absolutely be able to smash in this game so i called the number and had a meeting with the guy and he sold me a mortgage broking franchise and was that yellow brick road to start no. with or a one before that. this is 14 years ago okay this, right. is how, this is how i got into mortgage broking and then i had a meeting with him you know he had that pretty secretary and you know yeah, yeah. Told him the whole. you know when you yeah. feel someone's a salesman yep, yep. so and he then, pulled the whole sales yeah pitch. he put the whole sales pitch took me up to hyde park uh, Sheraton on the yep. park, I figure was yep. into that VIP area and yep. just talked business with me, and he sold me a franchise. I bought a franchise of him. Yep. He already knew the, it was a sinking ship. Yep. He was just trying to sell franchises to clip that money and then mm-hmm. use it. So yep. I'm not going to name names, but yeah, the sure. guy, the guy is a very—he's uh, he's not not a very liked person, and I don't think he's allowed to be a director on any company in interest yeah, in the in the country.
0: But so would you say that buying the franchise was a failure that you then? tried to figure out the leverage into
1: success or uh, oh absolutely I ran that I, I joined that franchise and I couldn't I didn't know what I was doing they didn't have right. the right training systems they literally were selling franchises and leave you to but drown. no no support of there it there was no yep. support like the, the support that they were promising for the franchise fee you paid mm-hmm. you, you felt like you just literally sunk money you could have just joined an aggregator now right. I know what I know now right yeah, like, yeah. Yep. but back then you could have just joined one you got it 10 times the support for zero cost you know so nice. they were literally f- selling franchises on TV and in the range of between thirty and hundred thousand for people who didn't know, right? Interesting. I was I was on the lower range at least, so I had yeah, yeah. good negotiating skills. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I can understand. So yeah, two years of that while I was yeah I was trying to figure it out, but mm. I just it's it's a hard game. Finance yeah. is a hard game without understa- without having any support to hold your hand. I spent two years. I probably wrote nine deals in two years, and I look back at those two nine deals I wrote. And I was like, they were the worst deals I've ever written. Like the way I presented the deals, um, they were the worst way you could possibly present it. I realized I can't keep going like this. It's not going to press forward. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to learn, but I know I can do this. And I understood the, not just the revenue model, but what, what the business meant. It meant helping families reach their dreams. And I really loved that aspect of the business. It was, you know, like with nine people helped, there was about three of them, which they would never would have realized their dreams without me, you know? Fantastic. So that kind of inspired me and I go, look, I- Do you remember that moment where you
0: realised that your decision was perhaps not the right one? And if we frame that as a failure,
1: um, do you remember that moment of saying, right? Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I think I was sitting in a McDonald's in Liverpool, just had a meeting and I'm like, what am I doing? I have no idea what to do with this customer's file, you know, and they 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 got their hopes and dreams on there in front of me.
0: So uh, the vision is there that you want to help people achieve their their goals and dreams by buying a home. I'm assuming this is all home mortgage. Yes. And you were presented with, you didn't have the the resources or facilities to help this one person because of the franchise you'd bought it into.
1: Yeah. Correct. Right. Correct. And um, I, yeah, I let them down because I couldn't get the deal done. And I look back at it, I would have got them a deal. Yeah, right? if I knew what I knew now, you know, right, and interest that that house they would have bought is probably worth one, two million, yeah. million dollars more than what you know yeah, right. than what it is today, you know. So, yeah. So at that point, you say, okay, this isn't working for what you wanted to do. What did you do next? Yeah. So next, I realized I need to go and work for someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, as an entrepreneur, wise, still all... in the broken game, you wanted yeah. to stay. Yep. Either broken or in, um, or in just lending. finance. Yeah, and finance like. and lending. Mm-hmm. So. i I was i asked all these brokers that i knew they took me they'll take me on nobody wanted to take me on so because that you know they could see i'm too entrepreneurial and then you know it makes sense you don't want to take someone on that's going to learn and leave right it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense so actually funny enough one of my poker players was a bank manager in eastern suburbs and he offered me a job okay yeah he was a um and he offered me a job as a business banking manager in um it was like the east gardens east uh, eastern suburbs yes. so i went for the interview and they're like nah, you're oh. not you know you're not the right fit you've done two years of breaking you've you don't know anything <laughs> you know I mean? but yeah they're like you, you're too green you need to take a different role they're like you know what we actually have another role it's an entry-level role but if you can prove yourself in there we'll move you up pretty quick so they gave me the job as the front desk greeter <laughs> 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 so, i went from like you know massive money to taking this massive haircut and then just in the position where you know I'm now earning bugger all, <laughs> and then yeah. my, my daughter was just born. What do I do? You know, like I've my, I've cut my income by five times, six times, maybe more. So I was just trying to work out what to do there.
0: So you now had a need to find the financial return for your skill set. Yeah, correct. And frame it in a different ways so that you could choose to chase your passion again.
1: Yeah, so I found that was the next problem. So during that problem period, I needed to figure out how to make more money. So I I started a side hustle at the same time, which was running nightclubs. So I got back into the nightclubs again. Right. Uh, but this time, obviously, over 18s, much more better nightclubs. Then we opened up like five or six of those and failed. Wow. We had we had one like opening week was always big. Yeah. Have a full house, and then the next week we couldn't get anyone to return. Wow. It happened like six times before we cracked it and ended up with, uh, doing events at the Hilton in Sydney because it was all about the venue, you know, and the yeah, music. And then we ended up getting a, a gig with the Markeen Sydney, which is the best nightclub in Sydney. Okay. And that went on for years. So, you know, we we managed to run very, create a very successful business out of that as well.
0: So under 18s, into poker, into broking, back to nightclubs. Yep interesting journey and in, in the bank simultaneous and the bank. <laughs> right. Oh so the bank was full time,
1: but the, this side hustle was night. Yeah, it was night time. Yeah. Sounds a bit like your dad doing whatever it would take to yeah <laughs> provide for the family. Trying to find a way, you know. I think actually, like my daughter was the most. Well, I was 22 when I knocked up my wife, so yep. <laughs> and uh, she was 19, so right. we were young kids, all kids trying to raise a kid. That kind of forced my hand to say, "Hey, look, I I really need to do something to get some money and buy a home and build some some assets." Okay. And so banking, and then after that, you went back to broking? Yeah, so that time at Westpac, I was, I meant to say the State of bank, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so I was at, I was at Westpac. I, was I started
0: my career at Westpac. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> and my manager, when they, so I mentioned I failed HSC. I had already been offered the job by Westpac as a manager trainee, and they put me into a teller role. And I remember distinctly, after the first 10 months, I thought, why am I spending this time counting everybody else's money? I have to find a way to turn my skills in. And long story short, he, my manager came out and said, right, you've got to go and do something related to banking. And I strolled up to the local TAFE. And, uh, oh, we've got this new accounting diploma, four years, three nights a week, part-time, sign me up.
1: And then my journey in accounting started. There so Westpac did it for me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yep. I, I was in that role. Yeah. Like as a front desk greeter, the sales of the branch, funny enough, putting me in the front desk greeter's as this, sales went up like 300% after that. Interesting. Like, because people- You would engage with people and talk to them about their needs and find them. A- yeah. I'd, I'd connect with people on a human level. That was mm-hmm. the difference where a lot of bankers, it's almost like a script. You're translating from the top down, right? You right. Hit 15 layers before you get to the bottom guy. Yep. And the bottom guy is translating revenue, revenue, revenue by the time you got down to the bottom where yep. I was all about just trying to help people. Yep. You know, so when people Fantastic. had a problem, I'd get in there and I'd be like, well, what's the problem? You know, like, let me help you. How are you feeling? You know, try to work with their emotions and, and, and help them. And people just naturally gravitated. And I wasn't even looking for revenue. I was just there trying to help people, which was the big difference. And it was just a simple philosophy. And what turned from that was people just telling, oh, everyone's got to see this guy. I got so busy in that branch because everyone's just like, oh, you got to go see Hung. he <laughs> he's, he's, he's going to look after you. Don't talk to anyone else. You know, it's been like, and I kind of build relationships from that. They did eventually promote me to that role, not after six months that they promised me. It took, what, 18 months?
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> And then I finally got into that You stuck with it?
1: Yeah. yeah, I stuck with it for 18 months. And when I got into the role, I'm like, okay, I think I've got the networks, I've got the capabilities now to get back into broking. You know, so I then reached out to all those brokers, all the top, and this time I was smarter with the brokers and selected, I went through the top 100 list. Okay. So I looked at yeah. who's the top 100 and who do I know list. this? I knew about seven of them with all my customers in the bank. Wow. so they were banking with Westpac at the time so I, I I approached them and asked them look do any of you guys uh, would be interested in taking me on this is my history and I, you know, I want to come I'll come on as a commission only contractor yep. I'm, I'll back myself you paid zero wages to me and none of them want to take me on do you believe that is that right yeah that? All Like we're just too busy you know they're all just like we're too busy we can't train someone but then one day when I was in the I was working um, someone who became my business partner came yep. in as a customer like oh you know you look Pretty good for the role. Like you're new to the role, sorry. And we would we started speaking and he's like, oh, I'm actually looking for a broker. So the stars just kind of align. Yeah. So I joined his business in Yellowbrick Road. he, he yep. was, uh, was Yellowbrick Road Ranwick. And then I eventually became his partner. And I then think- uh we grew that to the number one franchise nationally for five years or something like that after that. And
0: how did the support of that broker
1: network? compared to the original one that
0: you did. Oh, fantastic. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. Completely different. Being part is Because he's got it set up well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, we've become good friends over the years as well. So, yes, yeah. he's actually, yeah, he runs the mentor. He kind of was part of my mentorship yeah. going yeah. through that, you know, became his top performer for many years. So, you, yeah, you can see a big difference. Like, imagine just, it's like planting a seed without water, right? And it's the, I think that's the the franchise model where we have
0: to head is that franchises cannot just take fees anymore for not providing any value back. And we work with a number of franchisees where we're working to provide a value add solution back to the franchisee to take care of the compliance and the day-to-day and the payroll and, and help those franchisees minimize their risk.
1: Yeah, it has to be a win-win, I think, like with sure. anything. That's don't... my
0: approach to business too, Is it has to be a win-win, otherwise there's no point, right? Absolutely. What do you think looking back now um what do you think were the key things to each step in your career and if you like moving from one business to another you mentioned earlier that you saw the poker business starting to decline so what do you think the keys have been that you've helped or used to get to success
1: yeah so I think my biggest key would be not to be driven by money so finding a solution or helping people in we're a service-based industry obviously so a lot of guys in my sector might they're just purely looking for money and you can see it right smell it right. off the back of them you know i've always had that thing where i wanted to help people and i've always been a giver yeah born like that my father was a giver you know he, he's the guy back in the hard times would always help everyone or his family He'd give often money. at the detriment to himself i imagine yeah correct correct 100 percent. so that that kind of focus on just purely helping, helping people, people where it Mm. became the driver of what we did. Obviously, you're rewarded for that also, but you're not lying to people. You're not telling people this is what you're doing. You're just not trying to close a deal for the sake of it. When I was in the bank, I noticed not everyone, but there were people that were just like, you can hear the back chat in the background, and they're just literally just trying to close their deals purely for monetary incentive. Those guys didn't do very well in the bank. People know
0: it. Eventually, it comes back. You said it before, people smell it. Yeah. And our business service business is all about relationships. Mm. My biggest motivator is to build long-term relationships because then it becomes a vested interest on both
1: sides. 100%. Some of these people I actually met from like you say that I met when I was at that front desk. I still my clients today. Yeah. So you know you look at yeah you know, the longevity of the relationship. Uh, they and they've become very close friends one I know their dogs, their cats, their The babies. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: interesting, isn't it? I think from what you describe, it's really about showing that level of interest in people so that you can understand more than just the dollar you'll get out of them.
1: 100%.
0: You mentioned the failure with the first broking business, and you mentioned you started business when you were 14. Can you remember your first failure that you still use the same principles you learned out of that failure today?
1: Looking back at the first failure, probably just... Every time we failed, or with anything that we failed, we find a way to better ourselves the next time around. That's what I've noticed throughout it. Like even with the first poker business, we've done a lot of things where we, you know, even like setting up games or timeframes, paying staff and efficiencies. The the only way we got better or faster was to make those mistakes. That's what I noticed every single time. Well, do you have to make the mistakes is the question. Probably not. I could probably, you know, sometimes. But if we could figure that out before we make mistakes, then we wouldn't learn. No, you ought to learn. And and who do you know to trust? You can't. You, in order to get somebody else to take their advice, yep. how do you know you can trust them? You know, yes. that's a, that's the other thing. Yes. So you need the only way to, I guess, skip mistakes is to get a proven mentor half the time.
0: Yeah, I, I believe. Do you have a network of people who you talk to about? Perhaps you see a failure coming or. Do you try to preempt it now by
1: talking to those people who are in your trusted circle? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a very strong uh, inner circle. So my inner circle consists of, I think it's six guys mainly. Yep. All of them own very successful businesses, okay. Um, okay. and they're they're, te- they're my best friends for over twenty years. So yep. we've had, we've actually like you know, been through high school, through uni together. Okay. Uh, with a bunch of smart kids that kind of came yep. out of the pack. Yeah. We grew up around a lot of naughty kids. So half the guys that we grew up with are in jail, right? Because we grew up in the Western suburbs, right? Yep. So the cool kids were the naughty kids, you know, so. <laughs> but you were the smart kids. So was, well, all the smart kids are yep. like, kind of the cool kids. Like had, we had a good time at the same time, you know, yep. but we never, we never got into their, their kind of world. Um But yeah, so my inner circle, like I'm surrounded by lawyers, by guys who run, you know, outsourcing businesses, um, like, sorry, labor hire businesses. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep i got a you know, guy who runs probably the third biggest quantity surveying business in the country now. Uh, so, like, good examples right now, I'm trying to, I guess, get more in... I've never marketed my business in, okay. in the whole time I ran. I've, we've always been too busy. Yep, reputation and referral. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, I've doubled up in sales staff in the last 12 months. So, yeah. the team has expanded dramatically, and I've got people coming to me every day trying to join the team. Yep. So... I've I've realized I've somehow created a beast, and these things uh, are just naturally gra- drawing people like a magnet now. So That's they're, great. they're just tapping on my door. So I I want to I don't really I didn't really want to grow, but naturally we're growing. So I now need to turn on that I guess the lead flow to let people know what we're doing. Yeah, well, if
0: if you need any marketing, master marketing, are the people to talk to, they've really helped us in presenting our our positioning in the in the marketplace. So I can make a referral for you. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> So as as a business leader or as somebody chasing your passion, which is to help others and to solve problems, how has that impacted you personally? How, that, how has your business interest impacted your family and the other things you do outside of business?
1: Yeah, so like in, I guess, trying to grow a business in the initial run, that had its own, I guess, pushbacks, struggles. The beginning wasn't easy. Like mm-hmm. I was working 16 hours. A day like i literally would wake up i'd be working yeah go to sleep i'd be working i knew i was trying to build something for a better life for everyone mm-hmm. so in the beginning i probably didn't spend enough time with my, my daughter or my right. family but i was trying to solve a problem so i could spend more time with them later right uh so my days now i i realistically still I, i'm back at eight hour days now yep. you know which is which is great and my eight hours probably Five or six of it is pretty much doing stuff I love. Yeah, you know, fantastic. maybe two hours of stuff I don't really love, but I have to do it. There's majority of my days, so my days are, are great.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the the challenge of a small business builder, if you like, as opposed to a runner, it's really finding that balance between the personal, family, and other elements. How do you how do you make those decisions? And and can you think of a time where the business impacted your personal life or vice versa and you you vowed never to do that again
1: I I remember a moment with my daughter actually she was she was really young I think she was like in year one or year two she was really sad when she came home one day she's like oh um dad all the all the parents were were at school today you know and they were spending time with their kids and uh and you weren't there wow and I was like I, I was gutted. I didn't know about it I didn't yeah. you know, yeah. hadn't, hadn't even even known about it you know had i known about it i might have shuffled but that was just me being too busy to prioritize to to be looking at her school calendar and and doing all that kind of stuff and so that impacted me pretty heavily i'd look back at that and go look how do i make sure i'm on top of these things so i had to figure out how to better my engine room to get you know make sure that my calendar's correct yeah that my emails are coming in that i need them to come in and they're being filtered the right way and things like that so so seeing an event like that caused me to figure out a better operating rhythm
0: yeah, and it sounds like you've applied that that principle in business as well. You know, when things present themselves in a way that you think, oh, that doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to do, you course correct.
1: Yeah, correct. So every time something doesn't function, I just, I, I, like you said, I reach out to my inner circle and yep. go, what have you guys done? They've got yep. brilliant systems, operating, some do different things better than others. I kind of grab a bit of feedback from them. And so you really help each other oh, better, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. We try to catch up for dinner once a month and you learn a lot of each other all the time.
0: One of the questions I've asked most people we've spoken with so far is the role of business leader or entrepreneur can often be lonely. And you just described the dinner once a month. How do you combat that loneliness when you're presented with a problem and,
1: and you're trying to figure it out? How do you combat that feel of it's all on me? Yeah, so like I mentioned, with having a good circle of friends or people who understand you, because not like everyone understands you, right? We've got a tall poppy syndrome here in, here in Australia. If you're doing wish at all, someone's going to cut you down if you're in toxic people around you. Yeah, so you got to look around the room and figure out who you hang around or who you surround yourself with. Because uh, I could tell you, I had heaps of toxic people in my life. They yeah. were trying to cut me down since I was I was little. Yeah, I always got outcasted because I was always just always trying to get something better. And they were just saying like, who's the guy I think he is? You know, he's the editor us. You know, you're surrounded with the wrong people. They're actually cu- trying to cut you down. Yeah, I often talk about, you know, my role as, as CEO at Aritex is about
0: aligning people's strengths with what we need done. And so that's a, a natural lifter of mood. And there's no point me trying to change weaknesses because they all we all have them. It's about aligning people's strengths with what we need the business, or what we need from them in the business? Do you think about it the same way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we look at everyone who's joined our business throughout the years, and to be honest, we tried to hire people from Seek and things like that. And I could honestly say eighty percent of the guys in my business now are friends or people I've known personally now. Right. So I tried the whole you know corporate style of hiring. Look, and yep. that's probably a failure I haven't corrected. And right. I'm about Just to take a- on another one who's one of my best mates, which. It's probably, you know, like, but I know him, you know? Yeah. I know, I know his skill sets. I know what he's good at, what he's not good at. And I'm, my team is, my structure, or my engineering is built around people like him. Yes. yeah. You know, so yes. I really
0: know what I'm getting. And I think that's uh, been one of my keys to success is I find people who I can really trust to do what they need to do. They know what my role is and I empower them and they empower those people that they bring into the business. And, and that for me is a real key to not just providing a job. You know, I want to provide the opportunities for people who bring their skills, experience, and desire to help find that win win. It's the same principle with clients. I want to create the win win. So, how do you empower your people
1: to do what they are required to do to help your business? I actually schedule in my calendar once a month to catch up with everyone. It's only a quick session 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, are you happy? Is the first question I ask. That actually opens them up straight away. They're like, oh, yeah, look. it's been things going on in my life, and then, or whatever it is, you know, and, and from there, I'll work out what's happening and go, look, how can we make things better for you? Yeah. You know, how can we make you happy again? So the one question I always ask in, in my
0: one-on-ones with team leads is what do you need from me? Yeah. (laughs) And if they can help me understand what they need from me to help do their job better, then that gives them the opportunity to pass that on to their teams. I think that's a really important key. Checking in, understanding, because their frame of reference is different to ours, right? Thinking back to that first failure and your response to it or your reaction to it, can you think of a way that you now deal with failure differently? Uh, like that fear, that oh no, you, that gut feel of failure. Do you use it in another way now, to what that first failure taught you?
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm a lot more resilient to it than mm-hmm. I used to be. Like when I first you know paid for a franchise, lost a bunch of money. That gut feeling. That's painful. Right, that, that hurt. That, yeah. that really, really hurt and, spend, and not just that, the time consumption I spent for two years. Well, and the passion and energy you invested into it yeah. only to be thwarted by somebody else, not you. Yeah, and then to be at the front door of a, of a bank after that two year journey, you know, mm. to be like mm. kind of at ground zero from where I thought I'd be in two years, right? So that feeling is different now. Now I'm I'm doing a lot bigger things like property development. So I've had failures in that in itself, but those things, even when I look at them and the failures I had there, they don't hurt as much. And I think I get, I'm get much more strategic with what I'd fail with. I try to cross all my I's, dot on my T's now. Yeah. Um, and even then you'll still make a failure. Oh, i still make a failure. Yeah, yeah. like we've, we've got a couple of them in the site that we're doing at the moment. We're like, mate, how do we miss that? Could we have all seen this? Maybe? And I think the context for me with
0: failure is it's one more opportunity to take one more step. Yeah. And as long as we all recognise that Failure really is a part of the journey to success. You know, success might sit in the future or we put a brand on it, but it's, it's taking one more step when we fail because failure is inevitable. We're gonna make mistakes because we don't have perfect information. You work with a lot of successful high net worth clientele and people that you've known for a long time and they've come to you and trusted you with their venture and what they're trying to do. Do you learn things from that interaction and the way that they are pursuing their dreams? That's
1: how I learn a lot because I, I get to see the full. You get to see it all. Yeah, right? yeah. I get to see it the start to finish. I've got clients, guys who became CEOs of multinational companies and I watched them as sales reps in small companies 14 years ago. And I've helped them build, I guess, their asset bases on the back end of their successes. Yeah. Um, and I could see what worked for people and what didn't work. Using the relationship that you have with them in a way to craft or frame the way you approach the problems. Prime examples are property selection. That's a big one, a huge one. So everybody understands that wealth in Australia is on the backbone of property. Yep, right. So yeah, we are sure. very property-driven people. Something as uh, simple as picking the wrong property as your first property or investment, it can pretty much fail you for life. I've seen people who you know have been have talked to the wrong people, got the wrong advice bought these off-the-plan apartments that were never going to make mm-hmm. money, just yep. put money in the back pocket of the person selling it versus, you know, people who bought family homes as their first property and done very well and were able to upgrade. So I got to see the journey of two different paths. I think part of my business, why we do very well is we try to stop people from failing in a sense. Right. So when somebody comes... Put in the discipline and the way, the approach to the project they're looking at. Correct. So I don't, you can't give advice on exactly what to buy, sure. or what to do, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I've given this example to heaps of people in the past, but they came to me that want to buy an apartment in Rhodes, which they're living in. I go, how much are you renting for? They go 500, I think it's 550 a week. Yep. I'm like, uh, how much is that apartment going to cost? It's about a million dollars, right? Yep. I'm like, okay, well, let's let's measure this. Your repayments, you know, $1,000 a week, strata, Mm -hmm. this, that. Mm -hmm. Now it's going to cost you this much to hold the property. What's your end goal? Where do you want to get from this property? They're like, well, I need, I want to buy this property so it can grow in value so then I can buy a house so we can have our dogs and all that stuff right yep I know if just straight away my gut just sank for them because I go yeah there's a glut of apartments there the economics don't stack the up the economics don't stack up yeah I go well let's, let me ask you what are you trying to achieve and then I go well, aren't there better ways to do this right you know and so then you can help guide that strategy and, and how did they end up did they buy roads no they didn't buy roads they ended up um, using a buyer's agent that I know yeah. and they ended up buying uh, free houses in Queensland instead Fantastic. About and four, that's giving them the economic return they needed. They made I, I, I could value it this is only three or four years ago. So yeah. I could value it today and they're probably one and a half million dollars ahead. Yeah, so fantastic. Big big change for them. So that's applying the principles you learned on your journey at university and the
0: and helping them see a bigger picture. Yeah. And guiding but them in that
1: journey. I think what I where I learned all of these failures is funny enough, I did it myself. So right, I actually bought a bunch of crappy properties once. upon... Well, oh, not a bunch. I only have one crappy property. Yep. But that one crop, crappy property told me never to buy a crappy yep. property again. Interesting. And to Do identify, you still own it? I still own it. And it, has it turned around? It's still. Nah, crappy? it's. It's finally made some money after like twelve years. Okay. But like long, slow journey. So, like to give you an example, of that was that I was wanting to buy a house in Ingleburn at the mm-hmm. time. Yep. That was what my gut instinct said. Let's yep. get a house from there in Ingleburn. Yep. I got convinced by by some dodgy person to buy this off the plan unit in Brisbane Okay, that was in a you know really good marketing Yeah, great yeah. great yeah. swimming pool infinity pools and everything so they cost the same price yeah yeah. guess how much the housing Ingleburn's worth now? in that apartment probably two or three times yeah yeah two or three times the value in that unit that I have is, is only worth like 50 grand more than what I paid for it interesting at this point in time so it cost that one decision or split mode decision cost me probably close to six or seven hundred thousand maybe a bit more right
0: yeah, yeah. Well, and and you've learned it from it, so yeah,
1: that's a good thing. I'll never do that again, and uh, try not to let my clients do that. So,
0: let's li- using the lessons of you and your clients to help other clients move forward. Correct. Fantastic. What are the habits or behaviours or methods do you use to help convert failure into success? Or, or what is it about you that says, okay, I've just had this failure? How do you take that next step?
1: Anything that comes to me as failure, I reflect Mm -hmm. is probably the first thing and go what what did i miss yeah Yeah. what did i miss and how did i stuff this up so badly what i should be doing is actually writing it down which i don't you know what went wrong in this deal what did i do wrong
0: but you intrinsically or or intuitively know the things that you did along the road that got to the the point of learning right
1: yeah correct i'll look at it and i know every step of the way what happened that caused it yep um and if i was going to redo it how i'll do it better and what checkpoints or what things I'll test before I get to making that decision to jump in again. Interesting. So as a successful business person, you obviously understand the
0: importance of accurate information. How do you use information and data to help you make informed decisions?
1: On all levels, like between, I guess, friendships, between getting data from sources, paying subscriptions, or yeah, depending on what I'm trying to achieve at that given time is where we're gonna look for the data, but it's really important to get as much information as possible, right? Yep. So, Anything I can find on something I'm about to do now, I'd like try to source it. It doesn't matter the cost. Oh, it, The cost does matter to an extent Sure. That gonna add value, but if something's ridiculously priced, I'm not gonna pay for it, <laughs> yeah, For sure. Yeah, yes, for the reason, I guess. And
0: what about the financial results of your business? How do you get the accurate P&L or balance sheet or, or current software solutions like Xero and QuickBooks and all of those things give you the ability to get real-time information within a day, assuming that the bank feeds work? But how do you get that information into your hands quickly enough to be able to identify a potential risk
1: or failure and then course correct before you make it? I'm quite fortunate in the sense that I have a full-time accountant yep. kind of working in the business. I get weekly reporting and kind of where leads are sitting, where things are going in the business. I get that every Friday. So I can get a bit of a reflection. Yep on the week, but not, not everyone can afford that resource. Going back a year ago, we I, I didn't have that resource. Right. So we're, we were doing it manually, and obviously with the help of Zero and the rest of it, but it was a manual
0: process for us. And that investment has paid its return by giving you access to real-time information.
1: Oh, 100%. Information is key, yep. right? Without the information, you, you actually can't work out what to do or where to, I guess, plug the holes, Yeah. in a sense.
0: And how do you leverage outsourcing or offshoring in the way that you collect that
1: information? Yes, yeah, so we use offshoring ourselves and it's it's a vital part of our business. Without it, we won't be able to get what we need, abundance of information that we do need, and we won't be able to have the manpower to help support it, not for the cost that it'll actually yep. cost us to do it onshore,
0: uh, so it is a vital piece of the puzzle. What, from your perspective, is the most important thing about creating success from an offshore relationship? What do you put in place to help deliver the outcomes that you need from the people who are sitting overseas.
1: Yeah, similar to what we do onshore. It's actually we got to we've got to find out what their problems are and go over that line of communication with them. With any employee, whether it's onshore, offshore, the same kind of principles apply. They got to feel part of something. Correct. Yeah, you got to be part of the team. We'd do like birthday cakes and we'd buy them lunches over there, and you know we get us on on you know on the camera calls and yep. we're all having lunch yep. together. So sometimes we try to set up the, like a team's event where we're having lunch and they're having lunch and things yep. like that, you know, so yeah, just help them feel part of something bigger than
0: perhaps the desk they sit at. One of the things we find is that people don't necessarily build the infrastructure in that, what supports the offshore person in and how they do their role in your business. Can you talk a little bit about the infrastructure you put in place to help offshoring be successful?
1: Yeah. So I think in the early days we had that problem. We were just too busy. So we're just throwing them stuff to do. Do this, do that, Mm. do this, do that. How? Yes. (laughs) So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of teething and problems in that for sure. Um, And that really impacts the quality of the work that
0: comes back, right? If you don't effectively describe the context and give them the tools to deliver, our mindset is often, well, I'll just throw it that way and they need to give it back
1: to me. But what you get back isn't what you were expecting. Not at all. My business is an interest yep. hard one because it changes every day. Right. So you could write a script or yep. something for them to do, and you spend hours and on that script. Yep. That script is no longer valid in three months. Right. right.
0: So it's a difficult one. So you've got to find a way to build the intuitive response in line with the context. I think that's what you're describing.
1: Yeah, correct. So we went through the phases of trying to figure out how to build manuals and things like yeah. that everyone hates reading books so interactive videos mm-hmm. always helps so we've got a whole series of videos saved up depending on what it needs to be done it's 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 ordered alphabetically and things like that right if they get stuck and they can't get a hold of one of us they watch a video you know and it helps them the the risk I find with too much definition
0: of policies or requirements or whatever it is that you stifle curious thinking and in the people that we work with it's important for me that they find a way to have... This curiosity of why are they being asked to do something and what in this way, and thinking beyond just the doing. Have you got any examples you can think of where you apply that principle?
1: I don't know about me personally. In this, I do that all the time. All the, that's just my natural character and help I know, people understand. Yeah, I, I try to help them understand. But I noticed my most successful team members, mm-hmm. they're the most curious team members right they're the ones who actually need look for to the reason why yeah look for the reason why the ones that are just doing the task I can I can pick it straight away yeah and it comes it comes very quickly I I learned that curious thinking from any time I'm around a little kid the
0: response to anything is but why and but why and you can never get to the end of the but whys and so I try and encourage my team to don't get to the end of your but whys keep
1: asking if you don't understand ask those those kids that are the but why kids they mm-hmm. become geniuses mm-hmm. and you notice that when you watch them grow up
0: <laughs> you're clearly a family man and you enjoy time with your one daughter do you have more kids uh yeah we've got i've got a 12 or turning 12 now yeah mm-hmm. daughter and a son who's turning six fantastic uh, so how do you balance you mentioned a little bit about structure and the way that you look to put in place the discipline around your business and minimize the impact to your family it's a really
1: fine balance how do you manage that I think you have to prioritize your yep. family. Like yep. you can't just go, "Hey, I'm going to spend time with my family and enjoy yourself in work." I think you've got to block out your calendar for certain events. It's easier said than done.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a challenge, right? Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, when I'm, my phone buzzes at night from a client, it's hard for me not to try and help the client at that point in time and say, "Well, I can deal with it tomorrow."
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And um, your business is similar, right? Often the queries come after hours because that's when your clients are
1: focusing on the problem they're facing, right? Our one is dramatically after hours a lot of time. So most property deals here in Northern Beaches get done after hours because the people are working during the day. Yeah. The real estate agents are you know going back and forth. The deals don't close till 9, 10pm at night because they're all haggling until right. that time as well. Yep. Uh, and you got to be on the pulse. Like you got to be ready for these, these deals because if you're not there to help them pull the trigger, They're going to miss out on their family home
0: but what that means then is you can give some of your time back during the day where you're less busy to your
1: family and go to the school events and the things that are important for the family that's correct i think there's a few things which we call non-negotiables so if i try to block out the non-negotiables like if this is on and this is with uh, my daughter victoria yeah like this is a non-negotiable yep so you know for instance i might like i'm trying to get them to get a lot more i guess athletic yeah. yeah. Uh, so I did, and I, and I wanted to teach them some life skills. So we decided to do some like mixed martial arts and stuff like that on a Monday. And I want to get them both in there in the kids class. So we'll go on a Monday. I'm gonna I'm trying to black that as a non negotiable. Yep. You know, 4:30. That's that's a bit of family time with me and my kids. You know?
0: And and if if
1: you promote that
0: amongst the people you're working with, they know that that time is important to you, and they can respect it, right? Whereas if you just always accessible, the lesson for me out of it always is to, to say, look, this is not negotiable. I'm, I'm now gonna take some time away. And my time is often late afternoon where I wanna go for a walk or something, or get out of the office and clear my head. But that's my time. And I take the time away and then I re-engage when I get back.
1: So discipline is important. And when you black it out, you keep it there. I, I learned that a while back at some, at some point when I used to do those 16 hour days. <laughs> Can you think of a time where perhaps the business wasn't doing
0: or performing in a way that you wanted it to, and that influenced the way you engaged with your family? And and how do you manage that situation or vice versa? There was a situation that, with your family that in, impacted your interaction with the business. Yeah,
1: so I had a period where I was very, well, key people dependent, you know, mm-hmm. and one of my key people left Right, it was pretty much my assistant, right? And yep. Uh, she walked, and I, I can understand why she walked because mm-hmm. my stress was driving her stress, okay. which was then reflecting my stress in my family life, and I was just snapping it. There were, it could be the smallest thing that my son would do, and i was like, "What are you doing?" You know, yeah. Rather than handling it well, and you know, kids are like sponges, right? Once you start becoming aggressive with them, they they start learning those things and start becoming aggressive to everyone else. And I, I realized really quickly that I was doing all the wrong things. It so managing enough. your own stress is going to help you in both the business and private life. 100%. That, that was the most stressful period because I, I was manually doing everything myself compared to having the resources and I'd lost all my resources. It actually put me to a series of overload. I was, I was probably drinking more. Yep. Like yep. It was, I was like trying to drown away my, my stress, yes. and things like that. It was a dark period. Yep. It probably went on for six months before I found the right people to help You know, facilitate what I needed. Um, but I remember that, 100% I remember that period. And now you, you've got things in place to help you manage that stress? Now, our, I guess our team's a lot more yep. robust and we have the right skill sets. And I think that feeling that I had then, I don't ever want to feel that again. Right. So I made sure I have more resources than I need now rather than having just enough resources. So making the investment,
0: and that helps you manage stress but also helps you grow the business. If you had one thing that or one piece of advice or one tool that you use in your business, what would you pass on in, to somebody who is facing the struggles of growing a business?
1: Uh, look, I might go to, I guess a key point I always refer to is like having that network of people to bounce off. Every time I struggle in my business, I'm fortunate enough to have that network. Yeah. If you don't have one and you're surrounding yourself with the wrong people, you're going to find yourself really lonely, yes, really struggling, really stressed. I have a lot of people say it to me when I catch up and they go how do you find these friends yeah you know and I'm like I don't know they but find you they find you or yep. you got to go out there and, and try to and find it. if you're a small business join a BNI, join a networking thing connect with people like minded people you'll find get yourself in those places where there's like minded people mm-hmm. I was always one of those people who always if I was trying to target someone or be around someone I'd find a way of being in the room with them I'd find out where they are yeah but like, like a stalker I'd be like hey he's going to be at that pub that day I'm, I'm at that pub Right, you know, so fascinating i'd find a way to be in the same room as the people i need to connect with is there anything else you uh would like to share um uh, failure the... into success <laughs> it was a pretty yep. robust conversation i think a great conversation yeah um look i think the biggest one is don't be afraid i'm sure you've spoken about this before but don't be afraid to fail i've failed so many times and yep. i'm still not afraid to fail yep i'm doing new things now and I'm, and i'm i'm kind of i felt like i'm I've dived too deep on some things, and that's in property development. That's a new, new thing for me, right? I've been dabbling at it for a while, but I'm doing things, and I'm finding problems everywhere. Yes, <laughs> so I'm yep. getting problems everywhere. Who would have thought Sydney Council? T- I mean, uh, Sydney Water takes six months to respond to you on a, you know, on yeah, redoing really right. some some water. There, that's something I thought they'd respond to. It's paperwork. It'd be a two-week thing, but they're setting me back. So all my costings and all my numbers are drawn back six months, which Right. which is a lot of money <laughs> yeah. I didn't forecast this but don't be afraid to fail you always figure the harder you push into a corner the better you come out I guess
0: well and I think failure is an opportunity to grow you know if you're afraid to fail you won't take that risk uh, okay so to put some things in place to make, it, make sure it's an informed risk but we can never guarantee 100% outcome because we don't have all that information available so failure is just another opportunity to grow and to take one more step Hung, thank you very much. I enjoyed the candid conversation and hearing your story, not only of the beginnings of challenge with your, your father and moving to Australia, good on them for taking that challenge and for making a life here in Australia for not only himself, but his family. And clearly he's, uh, he made it a good investment with you and, and you've learned that, or taking those values in the way that you run your business today. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please remember to leave a review and subscribe for new episodes and content. Chris Kendall out and about.